through Numbers, and we are in chapter 30. If you turn there, put your finger there, I will eventually get there. Now, Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would help renew our minds and open our hearts to these precious words from Numbers chapter 30. I'm sensitive and delicate matters, complicated, but Father, we know with your Holy Spirit, you can make things very clear and simple to us and edifying in Jesus' name. Amen. A man from India was returning to his homeland. After a long voyage to another country, he was upon the sea at the time, they encountered a life-threatening storm. In great fear of drowning, he prayed to his Hindu god and vowed to sacrifice ten fat oxen if his life were spared. The storm passed over and the sea became calm again. Well, before he landed at the port, he had some time in the calm seas and the sunshine to reconsider his promise of the ten oxen and he he thought that that god might be satisfied with five what was i thinking he said ten oxen is quite a lot five seems very reasonable and perfectly good way to say thank you now on his long walk to his house he kept thinking about this matter That's a whole lot of beef, he said. Still, let's just go with two oxen. During the night, he couldn't sleep and started thinking of all the events they needed to host in the upcoming months and thought, he thought to himself, I could really use those two animals. Now, maybe I could use the one goat that we do have instead as a thank you to the God who saved my life. In the morning, he began to get that goat ready to transport, and his wife complained, that milk is our children's favorite. You can't take the goat. Fine, he said. I'll take that large basket of peanuts there to the temple, and I'll leave them before the altar. And on his way down the winding path to the temple, you guessed it, he became hungry and sampled the peanuts. And since he hadn't eaten breakfast, he ended up finishing the entire basket before he entered the temple gates. Once at the altar, he realized he only had a basket full of peanut husks. Empty promises. And unfortunately, like this sad guy, we all know what it's like to make a promise, make a vow, to offer something to the Lord and then come up empty Now, I'm not sure what his so-called Hindu god, Brahma or Vishnu, thought about the peanut husks, but Yahweh would not have been happy at all. Here's what Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, Don't be so quick with your mouth and hasty in your heart to make any old promise before God. He's in heaven. Think about that. You're on earth. Weigh your words and consider your promises. When you make a vow to God, do not delay fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, Whoops, I made a mistake. My vow is in error. Why should God be displeased with you and work against your efforts? 
So we humans all know what this is all about. We're quick to speak before we think. We talk with our emotions in the heat of the moment and the inspiration of that minute. We speak out loud our well-intentioned proposals to God. We promise to give, to make an offering of some kind. We make an oath to stop doing such and such or to begin doing something or whatever, we obligate ourselves to serve, and then we don't come through. Over time, the motivation uh, to come through with these promises cools, and the reality of the work or the cost or the discipline that's going to be involved in keeping that uh, becomes all too real. And suddenly we're faced with the payment of the proposal and we realize what a fool I'm the one who said it God didn't even require this I'm under this and in this bind because of my own lips God's not asking God's not demanding God's not required this came from me therefore since I got myself into this I can undo it and God says oh it doesn't work that way It really doesn't work that way. We think, well, I'm the one who said it, so I'm the one who could break it. But it's not the one who said it. It's the one to whom it was said that matters. So we're going to talk about that. You probably guessed that Numbers 30 is about vows and oaths, but kind of with a twist, because we have brought this up in Numbers chapter 5, the Nazarite vow, and we talked about vows and oath-taking. Tonight it's with a twist, it's the responsibilities of vow-taking in the context of worshiping the Lord when women are the ones making the vows. Now, the context is going to be important to the text here. The Hebrews are preparing to enter the promised land, and the Lord has been addressing matters of inheritance. You remember from chapters 28 and 29, who's going to live where, how are they going to divide up the land? Well... They're also talking about how to corporately worship the Lord once they have settled into uh, Israel proper. And God has been saying in chapter 29, here are the routines. They should be daily and weekly and monthly. And there are annual uh, holidays to help bring them corporately into the presence of God and to walk with God, to have a relationship with God. Now, in the midst of explaining to Israel how to come before him, he talks about the subjects of making personal vows because it was a very popular thing to do in the Old Testament with your relationship with God. And it's very popular today as well. For a variety of reasons, we make vows or oaths or promise things because of our relationship with God. And so he's going to bring that up He's already talked about men, and now he's going to talk about when a woman makes a vow of any kind of promise, a spiritual proposal, an oath, her walk with the Lord, what context it has to be in. So here we go, verses 1 through 16, we'll read the whole chapter. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. 
When a young woman still living in her father's house makes a vow to the Lord or obligates herself by a pledge, and her father hears about her vow or pledge but says nothing to her, then all her vows and every pledge by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her father forbids her when he hears about it, none of her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. The Lord will release her because her father has forbidden her. Now if she marries after she makes a vow, or after her lips utter a rash promise by which she obligates herself, and her husband hears about it but says nothing to her, then her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her husband forbids her when he hears about it, he nullifies the vow that obligates her or the rash promise by which she obligated herself, and the Lord will release her. Any vow or obligation taken by a widow or divorced woman will be binding on her. Now, if a woman living with her husband makes a vow or obligates herself by a pledge under oath, and her husband hears about it but says nothing to her and does not forbid her, then all her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her husband nullifies them when he hears about them, then none of the vows or pledges that came from her lips will stand. Her husband has nullified them, and the Lord will release her. Her husband may confirm or nullify any vow she makes or any sworn pledge to deny herself. But if her husband says nothing to her about it from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or the pledges binding on her. He confirms them by saying nothing to her when he hears about them. If, however, he nullifies them sometime after he hears about them, then he is responsible for her guilt. These are the regulations the Lord gave Moses concerning relationships between a man and his wife and between a father and his young daughter still living in the house. Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> Zach, my Zach. Uh, our Zach called me and said, hey, Pops, what are you teaching on tonight? And I said, um, that if a woman, a married woman, makes a vow to the Lord, she has to have her husband ratify it. And he said, I'll pray for you. <laughs> well, you know, there's much to say here, and the subject is really fraught with some sensitivities culturally, especially in our contemporary day. Now, some very intriguing verses, but even before we get to the content, let's talk about context because it's very, very important. Why were the women singled out here? And there's a couple reasons for this. First of all, if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one, no rights without responsibility. Authority and privilege given to male and female, to serve and become accountable. Here's what I mean by that. Authority and a privilege, privileges are given to people, but not without accountability to serve. Um, Matthew 20, Jesus says, You know that the big shots of this world love to boss around people and use their position to be self-serving. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must become a servant, just like me, the Lord. I didn't come to be served, but to serve others and give my life away. 
And so really, recently in context here, some pretty auspicious rulings from heaven came down, as you recall, favorable to the rights of Hebrew women. Now, four chapters ago in Numbers 26, uh, the Jews were dividing up the land by family inheritance, and Zelophehad had no sons. He died, but he left five unmarried daughters with funny names. You remember them, the five Jewesses. They boldly come forward to Moses and before the princes of Israel and the Lord ultimately and say, excuse us, why should we be penalized for not having a brother and not having a father? That's our land. We want to inherit our share. Moses goes to God, and as you recall, the Lord said, fork it over. Give them their land. Well, this has sent shockwaves throughout the Hebrew world there. These women were what? On equal standing with men. Now suddenly, God is going to bring the counter and, and the balance to this uh, new thought of liberation here that with uh, honor and privilege will come accountability and humility and servitude and submission. The two go together, authority and honor and exaltation and also serving and humility. Now, Yes, women and men, according to the Old Testament and the New Testament, have equal worth in God's sight and standing before God um, as children of God, male and female. But no, and this is what this chapter is about, no, the gender function and roles of family with authority and submission will remain the same. Now, I'm going to develop this thought concerning the worship of God, which is the subject at hand. Uh, women, in their relationship with God and taking personal vows, had to consider how their vows and how their walk with the Lord and their proposals to serve God would impact their husbands and their family. And so, now think about it. Making a significant vow could really impact the family and the husband, and really, it could really alter the course of the family. I mean, depending on what she is going to vow. And so it's only kind of common sense that the Lord is saying that vow would have to be in agreement with the husband who's given the God-given task to lead the family. And so... Uh, if you're taking notes, go ahead, Roman numeral number two, personal vows and oaths. Let's first understand what kind of vows these women might be making, all right? So in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there were various uh, kinds of vows, all kinds of shapes and sizes. There were the quid pro quo kinds of vows, meaning in Latin, this for that. We've talked about this before. Hannah said, give me a son, O Lord, and I'll give him back to you, and he'll serve you all the days of his life. Jacob said, Lord, if you protect me and bless me, I'll give you 10% gross of everything I make. Jonah said, Lord, if you get me out of this mess, I'll actually do the thing you asked me to do in the first place. <laughs> now, um, but we don't know about Jacob so much, but we know everybody here of those three uh, illustrations came through. Now, God seems to be okay with this kind of dialogue. He seems to be okay with it. Lord, I, I, I'd like this to happen, and, 
And if this happens, I'd like to offer this. And he seems to be okay with that. What he's not okay is for him to come through and do what you asked him to do, and then you not do your part. He's not cool with that. So there's the this for that kind of vow that she could be making in this chapter, or there are um, vows for spiritual consecration, consecration, which just is a fancy word for interpersonal devotion. So she could say, you know, I want to give up meat for a month, or I'd like to not drink wine in the home for half a year, or they were always temporary, and they were always voluntary. God was not asking anybody for anything except simple trust and obedience to him. These are voluntary. Wherever you hear vow and an oath, these are coming from the heart of the worshiper. And so uh, this is for getting closer. They would even say, for a while, we will abstain from marital relations for prayer and consecration to the Lord for a temporary time. So there's vows of consecration, vows for quid pro quo, and vows of gratitude that she could be making in this chapter. Leviticus 27 will list all kinds of vows that the people were doing. Gifts of finances, not from God's word in in this case, but from their own hearts. I, I want to give this much money. Or, according to Leviticus 27, there were gifts of property. They would give fields. They would give houses to the Lord through the temple. Um, portions of inheritance. They would give their a part of their inheritances up for the work of the Lord there in Leviticus 27. These are all free will vows. But see, they would go to the temple and they would say, I'd like to give you uh, X percentage of my inheritance. And then the temple would send a messenger And then they would say, oh, that was an error. I didn't mean 40%, I meant 15% or whatever. So the Lord says, no, 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 no. I didn't ask you for anything. You're the one who came and obligated yourself to me. And now it's very important for your own sake, for the person that you are becoming, for the person that you need to be, because like father, like daughter, like father, like son, you need to be a person of your word. And so there were all these kinds of things. You could also offer yourself for service in the temple. You didn't have to be a priest. You could assist the priest and say, you know what, I want to take six weeks, six months, six years, and I want to offer myself. So any of these kind of offerings of gratitude or thanksgiving or consecration or uh, help me with this and I'll do that, the vows in chapter 30 could be any of these kinds of things. You remember Zacchaeus when he was overwhelmed with joy, you know, there when Jesus came to be a guest in his house in Luke 19. He stands up and he says, half, the, half of my possessions I give to the poor. And you know what? If I've cheated anybody four times back, I'll give retribution there. So did Jesus ask him to do that? No. He has now made an oath, and God said, I heard that. And for your sake, not mine, I need you to be true to that. Now, so, um, Roman numeral number three, 
God's perspective on our promises. Now, verses 1 and 2, he says, When a man makes a promise to me, a pledge, an oath, a vow, his intention, whatever, he's got to carry it out. Now, why? God's take on our words is this. It's very serious. And now, why? Now, if you've made a stupid vow about something, you know, we're not talking about stupid vows that you should break. All right. We're talking about a God-given and inspired moment where you've made a promise or you have intended to do something for God and to serve him. And he says, you know, first of all, I find it very embarrassing, verses 1 and 2, that he has to say, you know, if you've, you've made a promise to me, I need you to keep it. That's very sad that God has to say that. But he does have to say that because we're all, sorry, prone to lie. We're prone to just get all big talk and then not come through. And he says, that just can't be a part of who you are. So why is it so important that we be true to our word? Number one, God's character. Faithfulness and truthfulness is the foundation of who God is and how he deals with us. Honesty, truth, and integrity, and faithfulness, listen, that's who he is. It's not really qualities. It's like who God actually is. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the embodiment of faithfulness to your word. That's who he is. So to have fellowship, to stand on his holy hill, who may ascend to his holy hill and have fellowship with this kind of God, you better be in sync with his kind of nature. And who is God? He's truth. He's honesty. He's integrity. He's faithfulness. There's no darkness in him. There's no lie. There's no hypocrisy. So as his child, you're coming to him and locking with him, and you're saying, you are a person of your word. I am a person of your word, of my word, and boom. He says, that is why it's important, because of who I am. God is a covenant-keeping God. Think about who he is. The, the way he deals with you. Old promise, new promise. Old covenant, new covenant. He sits at a table and he says, this is my blood of my covenant to you. I am making a promise to you in my blood. That's who he is. That's how the overarching theme of how he's dealing in your life is a new promise, a vow to you. The whole premise of your Christian life is hanging on what? God keeping a word to you, a vow, a promise. So if this woman or any person is going to make a vow, you better intend on keeping it because that's who God is. He's a promise keeper. And if you're going to have a relationship with him, you can't be loose with your words or your intention. You can't just raise your hand on a Sunday and in the heat of a, a moment and a word of God and say, yes, I will do this or I won't do that or I'm going to become a Christian. Every time I say this in prayer on a Sunday, I am obligating you to a vow. I will repent. I am a sinner. I will live the new life. I will repent of my sins. I open my heart to you. I will walk with you. I am officiating at a wedding between the, the bridegroom and the bride. 
spiritually speaking, figuratively speaking. And so, yeah, it's important. He says, if a guy opens his mouth to the God who is truth and is honesty and is integrity, and the only way he deals with us is that he's a vow keeper and maker, and then you make a vow, you better keep it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, Jesus says, you know what? It'd be better if you just lived with enough integrity where you don't need to make vows. You could just live and your yes means yes and your no means no. And I think that a good word of advice is live with so much integrity you don't need to make vows. And it's better to not make a vow than to make a lot of vows that sound very spiritual and then not keep them. Broken promises destroy families, ruin marriages, wreck careers. It says a man's word is his bond. His bond means like a financial guarantee. So in other words, if you have said something, that should be enough. Jesus said live in such a way that your word is enough. Now, in Leviticus 27, if you were going to say, I can't fulfill this vow that I've made, there were costly ways to redeem that. Costly. So God was making it very uh, costly for the person who broke the vow. They had to come and they had to pay dearly and make a sin offering. Do you hear that? It wasn't just, oh, well, I can't do it. I'm sorry. I don't feel like it or whatever. God in Leviticus 27 says if he's made this vow and broken this vow, he needs to bring this. The principle there is God for our own good teaching us to be like him and not be like the devil because the devil is a liar and he never keeps his word. So he says, you are my kids. You've got to be like me. You've got to think before you speak. And when you read the Bible and when you sing those words, you need to live those words. Pay attention to what you're singing twice a week. They're incredible vows. You are vowing yourself when you sing the words. If you cannot and do not wish to keep those vows, my counsel to you is to stop coming and stop singing them. It is better for you to stop coming and stop singing those words than to sing them and then not live them. Intentionally, you will bring the judgment and chastisement of God upon you because he takes your words very seriously. You all sang promises tonight. I will, I will, I will. I do, I do, I do. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. I'm serving you, I'm serving you, I'm serving you. And then out the doors we go. And I hope to God, for your sake and mine, that you are trying. Perfection? Come on. That's why we have a Savior. None of us are perfect. But the intent of the heart, the awareness, the intentionality, that's very, very important. Now let's get to the controversy. <laughs> There's only two really controversial parts. Uh, men's vows are binding. binding. <clears throat> 
but two classes of women's vows had to be ratified by a man, but two classes of women did not. So Roman numeral number four, vows that needed to be ratified. First of all, it's more common sense, this one. Making spiritual vows when you're a dependent minor daughter. First of all, the Bible says, Dad had the veto power over minor daughters in the home. Let's say your 16-year-old daughter, sir, says, and let's call her Sarah, a nice Jewish name. I want to dedicate my life to serving in the temple, Dad. I wish to remain unmarried and serve the Lord. Or I wish to give a portion of my dowry to the poor. Dad had a couple choices. If Dad heard her say this and said nothing, God says, your silence, sir, is consent. Words are powerful, and silence speaks as well. So if she's telling you, this is what I intend, and you have not objected day after day after day, we're good, we're on, she can serve that. But if dad says, honey, you know what, I just have a... As we love to say, I just have kind of a check in my spirit. I just don't, really don't feel good about this. You're 16 years old. I want you to wait a few years, whatever. God says, I'm sorry, we're off. I've placed, ideally, dad in a place of loving accountability and wisdom. Ideally. And I know this gets really complicated when dads are psychos and, or absent or mean-spirited but ideally god is saying there's a man over you young lady to help you and if he if you think that you can go around him and to god and have your relationship apart from your covering young lady which was his dad you're wrong now to the part that's harder the engaged woman or the married woman The same thing goes, he says. Now, verses 6 through 8. The idea here is is that the married woman is not a free agent. She is becoming one with somebody else, and her vow affects another life. And so he's saying, you're not a free agent, and your pursuit of God cannot be independent of your God-given covering your husband. So the wife, let's say, in Numbers 30, the wife says, Honey, it's on my heart to move to Jerusalem. You know what? We make pilgrimages every other year. Let's just move there. He has a choice. Honey, that's an excellent idea. Let's do it. Or to say nothing and just say, You know, I think I'm going to let this go. And he says nothing. God says, We're on. Great. It's great to have an idea like that. And the husband affirms that, yes, good. But if the husband says, honey, it's just not going to work with my job. It's not going to I don't see it. You know what? I'm, I'm not into this trip to Jerusalem. God says, we're off. Ladies, he's saying, you cannot pursue me as an independent person when you have made vows to someone to become one with. 
You cannot skirt around him as unspiritual as you claim he is. You cannot have an independent thing with me as spiritual as it sounds. You cannot. You must come under him and you must have his blessing. You can't do your own thing when you're one. You're not one anymore. You have joined to somebody else. You cannot just make up your mind and say, oh, I want to abstain from this or abstain from that. My word, I can tell you stories, and I am going to tell you a couple stories. Now, there was a woman. Which one do I want to tell you first? She took on the head of a women's ministry. She went to her husband, and she said, I can be the regional director of this women's ministry. This is years and years ago in places that you have no idea about. And the husband said, don't do it. Too much time. And our marriage could use a little help. She did it anyway. And I've told you this story before. He would come home and he would say to others, he would come home, he came home to a cold, dark, empty house four nights a week, with frozen lean cuisine dinner on the counter. She's saying, I'm making a spiritual vow to you, O Lord, around the husband. The husband said no. Biblically speaking, she should have come under her husband and said, Lord, you know I wanted to do this, but you know, you've called me to be one with my husband and I want to win him and his favor. They divorced. Now, I wouldn't have ever told two Christian people to divorce, but I, like everyone in this room who heard what, his, what he said that he comes home to, every single person would go, did I say go ahead and divorce? I didn't. Did I go, oh, no wonder. Yeah, like everybody else. The woman and a man four churches ago None of you know who I'm talking about, obviously. It's not even in this region. The woman says to me, I could take or leave sex. Not important to me. I said, how about your husband? Oh, yeah, him. Um, I can see you don't know a lot about marriage. You don't know a lot about men. You don't know a lot about God's word. How dare you, your husband or your wife, just think about what you need. That marriage is doomed when a person doesn't understand that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, they were depriving each other like this woman. And they were doing it because there was a false teaching that said it's not very spiritual to have marital intimacy. It's more spiritual to pray and read your Bibles. So Paul said, look, 1 Corinthians 7, if y'all want to do that, you better be both in agreement and it better be for a short period of time. And then both of you need to be together because somebody's going to commit adultery. That man in that office with the woman who said, I could take it or leave it and I don't care about it. He cried and he said, 
I fear to God I'm going to commit adultery. He said, I'm trapped. I'm trapped. What do I do? We're Christians. I can't divorce her. I don't have grounds really biblically, but I don't have a wife. I don't have release. I don't have God-given intimacy that I was created for. I'm going to commit adultery. Pray for me with tears going down his face. And her, I could take it or leave it. The point of Numbers 30 is consideration of one another because it works both ways. And I can build a case biblically for the guy to be in the hot seat right now. The ladies, just so you know, it works both ways. The point of Numbers 30 is love and respect for one another. And to realize that when this is out of whack and we think that we can go around each other and disrespect one another and not care for one another, that this is hindered. Up and down is hindered. Jesus said, if you're at the altar and you're about to write your check and put it in the tithe box, please refrain when you think somebody's out of whack with me. Go and make it right with the person whom you've offended or have an offense. And then come and write your tithe check and that will be pleasing. Because I'm not interested in your tithe check. I'm not interested in your songs. I'm not interested in anything. When you're hurting somebody, you're putting somebody in harm's way. I, I really, really don't really want intimacy with you right now because of what you're doing. Get that right. And don't think you can carry on with me in a spiritual fakeness and have everything else out of whack where you're causing people hurt and pain. That it doesn't work that way. Now, if that's the way we are to a brother or sister, how much more if it's your husband or your wife? First Peter, Peter says, Husbands, live considerately with your wives and show them love lest your prayers be hindered. So it's the same deal. The wife must respect and can't live independently of her husband, and the husband can't live independently like, well, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to carry on my relationship with you. I'm going to have devotions in the morning. I go to church. I write the church check, but then I'm going to be inconsiderate to my wife all day. And God says, it is so not working that way. I'm not listening. He says your prayers will be hindered. That means he's like not working with you. He's not receiving. So it's very important here, Numbers 30. Now, why does he say two classes of women don't need to check in with anybody? And their vows are binding right away. Widows and divorcees. Why? Nobody's impacted by their vows. They can vow. They want to spend the summer in Europe serving in an orphanage. Have at it. Binding. <laughs> if they want to give away half their savings account, it's up to them. <laughs> Binding, the Lord says. Do you see? Now, I do want to close on this note. Your salvation and my salvation doesn't rest on our vows, thank God. When the Old Testament was being ratified, Genesis 15, Abraham's snoozing 
and the Lord is walking through the sacrifices and blood's flowing, and, and, and he's snoozing. Man is snoozing. The Old Testament is being ratified, but God is doing it unilaterally, laterally, all right? In the New Testament, as I've mentioned before, the disciples are sleeping. Blood is flowing from the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. The New Testament is being ratified. The new promise, the new vow, and the boys are asleep again. Jesus, it's all up to God in both New Testament and Old Testament. And so, my friend, everyone in this room has been guilty of promising or, or singing verses that, that we don't intend on carrying out or whatever. We all fall short. But I don't want to leave you with a little conviction. But I don't want to leave you with condemnation because condemnation is irrelevant for the Christian. There's no condemnation in Christ. It's irrelevant. It's gone. It's paid for. You will never be put to shame. But you can hinder your Christian life. And these principles here, Numbers 30, really are, are showing us how to live. Let us married couples quit thinking that we can have a personal relationship with God and please him while we violate his design and disrespect or disregard our spouses. For a married person to please God, they must show love and respect and consideration for their spouse or the relationship with God is hindered. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these truths that just kind of slap us upside of the face and uh, get our attention. Lord, we want to please you. We want to make vows that, that are pleasing in your sight. And Lord, we want to be careful with what we're saying and how we're living. Even if we're not saying it with our lips, we're saying it with our lives as being Christians. Help us to live true and be true and speak truly. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Our precious ladies, look at me. I have a word for you. Women, this is profound, are different than men. They tend to be more spiritually inclined. You tend to have more women in churches than men. When there's a retreat where women are going to gather together and share and emote together, you have 80 women all going from one church. And when guys want to get together, you know, there's 30 or 25 guys going. There's a difference about how we express our spirituality to the Lord. This chapter, ladies, is saying you have a you may have a tendency to get out in front of your husband because you are spiritually inclined and intuitive. But you're going to have to come under him. You're going to have to be patient with him. You're going to have to pray with him. You're going to have to trust God through him. You're going to have to look past him and submit to him as unto the Lord not qualify him for your trust and submission, but to look past him and his flawedness as he must do for you. To love you as Christ loved the church, he must look past you and what you don't provide him and how you have failed. But he looks to the Lord. If you're both looking past each other to the Lord, 
submitting unto the Lord and loving as unto the Lord, then you'll be on the same page and he won't be leading you where you don't want to go and you won't be coming up with something and leading him where he doesn't want to go, but you'll both be checking in with each other on the same page, considerate and kind and loving to one another. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that this marriage counseling moment (laughs) would go deep into our hearts. And those who are not yet married, remember these words. Take them to heart. Let us be kind and patient and forgiving and cutting grace to one another and looking in, in, in each other's eyes tonight saying all is forgiven, all is past, all is covered. The blood of Jesus has forgiven me. I forgive you. God, let it be so. Let us have happy rejoicing, husband and wives, brothers and sisters in the Lord. We may walk together in love and unity and serve you well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.